most painful thing. Hello and welcome to episode 100 of What Most People Think. 100. 100. He raises his hat. His hat. <laughs> he raises his back to the Barmy Army over there. What a what a wonderful century that's been there. Started off quite slow with the run rate. Then COVID happened and the uh, podcast went to one a week. And uh, what a wonderful decision that was. I don't, look, I've done my Richie Benno for a long time. I hope that that still sounds all right. Uh, thank you so much to everybody that's downloaded the podcast and got it up to this point. We are on well over a million downloads at this point, which doesn't put it up there with, you know, the top ones you see at the top of the charts all the time, but it's not bad. It's not bad at all. And for people who like radical political and social commentary and comedy from someone pretty much bang smack in the middle, let's be honest. I hope that you uh, have enjoyed the journey till this point and I knew we had to have a special guest for today and boy have we got one. We've got Al Murray, the pub landlord Al Murray, the not pub landlord Al Murray, the two men for the price of one. No, I mean he's very much not in character for this podcast, although it would be great to get him on. Al, if you're listening... I would really love to do another one with the character. That would be that would be meta, as the uh, more wanky people in comedy might say. But we had a chat and we spoke, and the, I'm going to keep everything as brief as I can today because I don't. I try to bring in around an hour, maybe no more than an hour and ten. But we spoke about so much interesting stuff. I, I want to lose as little of it as possible. But we talk about the culture of comedy, where it's where it's come from, you know, where it, where it's going and the fact that Al came into comedy at the end of the self-righteous comedy at the 80s during the alternative period. So maybe things are a bit more cyclical than we think. But I think you're going to love this chat. Just before we get into the normal features, um, just remember, let's just remember now, as cases have fallen for six, seven days in a row, um, let's just hold these people to account that said that there were going to be 200,000 cases. Do you remember that? Old Neil Ferguson, that guy, old Shagger Ferguson. <laughs> he's been at it again. Obviously, the bad predictions rather than the Shaggy. I don't know about the Shaggy. Now it's unlocked. Maybe he's thrown it all around London. Um, but they never seem to face the consequences for the, the predictions that are way off, right? And you understand why they would might err a little bit on the side of caution, but there's got to be some sort of accountability. They, they just remind me of my mum constantly predicting the worst possible physical outcome to anything. You'll, you'll have your eye out, boy. You'll have your eye out. You'll, you'll fall and you crack your head open. Because for mums in the 80s, cracking your head open was very commonly done. What they meant was you'll cut your head slightly and it will bleed disproportionately. But have your eye out and crack your head open were sort of emotive manipulations that basically meant that they couldn't handle seeing you engage in risk. And that is what Neil Ferguson is. He's a mum from the 80s. He just keeps throwing shit at a board, hoping that some of shit at a fan... He actually throws the shit at the fan and all the shit mostly flies away, but he he sort of takes note of the shit that's stuck to the fan. And just another thing about the politics, I do try to stick up for the BBC. As I say, I am not a defund the BBC guy. On balance, I am a fan. I think it's a can be a voice for moderation. But there was a story within the last week where Sajid Javid had said um, that we shouldn't cower from COVID in a tweet. Now, most people in Britain, I think you're thinking, yeah, okay, what's what's interesting about this? Well, because Twitter gets all hurty because of words and Sajid used a sort of macho word like cower, people got all upset and of course, you know, were throwing their experience of COVID and, and loved ones that they'd lost. I mean, I don't know why people always have to make it so directly personal. 
I'm pretty sure that he didn't mean that anybody that got seriously ill or died from COVID was somehow cowering from it. So then he apologises. All right, fine. It's a usual Twitter piece of bollocks. But what astonished me was that it was the lead story on BBC News for half a day. The lead story that the, the health secretary said a hurty word, said a hurty word in a tweet. Some people got upset. And that is the lead story on one of the most trusted and accessed news sources in the world. Um, and you'll see now, you'll see now with uh, with what's happening with COVID is that the liberal left increasingly find themselves in a bit of a bind, really, because they're back to that point where they more or less agree with what a lot of the government are doing. They liken the authoritarian noises that Boris is making about COVID passports. They just sort of egging him on in their own hearts. But meanwhile, they, they sort of like to continue feeling anti-establishment, don't they? Because that's how they get a bit of anti-establishment, means they sit on their their Apple device, do you know what I mean, get a delivery from Amazon and basically benefits from benefit from the fruits of capitalism generally. But they like to feel uh, anti-establishment, so they, they'll focus on words. So you're going to see a lot more of this, is as the government sort of increasingly interfere, censor, legislate, tax, do all this stuff that they really like uh, and, and sort of prove them not to be liberal. They, they'll, they'll still find stuff to be upset about. And if all else fails... They'll mention the fact that Boris has got six kids. So there you go. That, that's like the joker when you're on the left is, oh, fuck, we're up against the wall here. Boris has got six kids. The, the articles that he wrote before. Okay, let's talk about uh, the Patreons. So the Patreons, if you join the podcast, and thank you so much, all Patreons, for help me helping me keep in this weekly and ad-free. Isn't it a beautiful thing? No adverts whatsoever. No disrespect for the people that that choose to have them. I just I just like it like this. You know, I can have whatever guest uh, I want. And um, there's extra content, of course. It's not just that. I mean, those are the principal reasons for doing it. If you want to watch the whole of my last stand-up tour, Taking Liberties, which is about the state's increasing tendency to micromanage our lives. I mean, just I was... Once again, ahead of my time. Um, you can you just you go in at any level with the Patreon. That is there for you to watch. My lockdown set from Unleashed uh, Comedy Unleashed at the backyard. That's there. Twelve Patreon only episodes. That's there. You'll be canvassed about guests and there's all sorts of fun stuff. Actually, I think I just did state most of the main benefits, but then made out there was loads of other stuff. But there will be heads up for TV records. A lot of the patrons were present for my Radio 4 virtual record. And when I'm doing things in physical, uh, in person, you'll get heads up about that. So it's well worth the money. Uh, the cuss count. Uh, David Domain was very happy with having Alan Cochran uh, as a guest. He's always had a soft spot for him. And he though the swear count was... Uh, it was There was 40.46 a minute from me uh, and two cricket references. And I may have just cut and pasted this badly... But I don't see any swears from... Oh, he only had one swear where David Domain mouthed the word arsehole. What, what a, sorry, Alan Cochran mouthed the word arsehole. arsehole. So a complete uh, gentleman. Oh, sorry, I'm, I'm all excited here with the uh, the 100th episodes. We I didn't read out all the new Patreons. We have one VIP this week, so he's going to get a mention on his own. If you do the VIP, you get an extra upfront, upfront shout out, and that is Ben Kelly. Ben Kelly. I've got to say, Ben, that sounds like... You sound like just one of the popular kids at school. Do you know one of those kids? One of those little kids that was good at good at football. You know, do you know Ben Kelly? Yeah, no, Ben Kelly, mate. Oh, mate. He's got such a sweet left foot, Ben Kelly. Do you know he's going out of Tara? He'd be dating, you know, the first guy. First, first, <laughs> one of the first guys to get his end away. 
Ben Kelly, you know, absolute legend at school. You catch up with him, with him in his 30s, he hasn't really moved on. But when he was 15, mate, he was the absolute boy. Do you know Ben Kelly? He can get he can get served at the offy, mate. He came out of there with 18 bottles of K the other day. Remember that? Hey, let's do some nostalgia. K cider. Do you remember that? Where they realised that one of the ways to make cider even more magical and mysterious is to smoke the glass black. And used to think I'm drinking black cider. But what you're really drinking was cider that was 8%. My God, we used to get off our tits on that. So the thank you is to the good people of the Isle of Wight. I did tour preview at the Ventnor Fringe on the Isle of Wight. And it was great fun. It was great fun. I did an early forerunner of I Blame the Parents. And we got jokes, man. We got jokes. We got stuff. I managed to make a few lefties gasp, which is all. <laughs> gasp and laugh. That's what I want. Reluctant laughter, as I've said it before. It's the sweetest sound. But uh, thank you to the dad that bought his wife and I think his 10-year-old son and then just sat there and looked slowly horrified as he realised that this wasn't the show at all. I think he just arrived late and gone, right, what's the next show starting? And I think, you know, 10 minutes in, I'd mentioned, I'd sworn several times, mentioned uh, pronouns, uh, took the piss out of the NHS. I think he thought, yeah, maybe this isn't exactly the show for my son. And he, he walked out in that brilliant way by, whereby he wanted to show with his posture, i.e. crouching, that he uh, was trying not to disrupt anybody. <laughs> as the most middle class thing in the world to do, you know. I, I don't know what would have happened if that was like a working class drunk dad who'd come in. He'd have gone, well, you're swearing in front of the fucking kid, are you? Uh, a fuck you uh, to the guy on the ferry back to from Cowes in the Isle of Wight to Southampton. Uh, the guy who had his dog on and it was off the lead. And you know when those people do that, when the dog comes up to you, it's all big and stinky and doggy. And I was trying to do some work and he come up to me and the dog was sniffing me and he went, he's all right, mate. I went, don't you? I don't care if he's all right. I'm not all right with your fucking sweaty dog coming near me. I hate On a ferry. Seriously, man. Off the lead. On a ferry. And he was all walking around like some kind of, uh, I don't know, he, he, he dressed a bit folksy, sort of like a cross between a, uh, a sort of share broker and Mumford and Sons. It's fucking weird. So he annoyed me. I was very stressed on the way on the way back on the ferry. I think I'd, I think I'd drunk too much the night before, so I was a bit on edge. So anyway, maybe I was a bit more hungover than I thought. So let's get on with the chat with the one and only, the brilliant for the 100th episode, Mr. Al Murray. Okay, so for episode 100 of What Most People Think, I'd like to welcome the one and only Al Murray. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> Thanks for coming to the show. We're just having a quick chat off air about yeah. how much cool stuff there is in the background. Obviously, this is annoying for the listener because they can't <laughs> see it. And we were sort of reflecting on the fact that in the early days of the Zoom stuff, I got it way wrong. That I thought I'll keep it blank in the background. But yeah. they're, the public are nosy bastards, aren't they, basically? They they are. And, and you know, I mean... Obviously, you, you sort of curate what's behind you a little, um, but but people like I think they like a kind of glimpse into into your world. <laughs> are, are you are you back out touring? Because I always got the sense, particularly when when we could last year, that you were a man that wanted to get back out and do whatever you could, whenever you could. Yeah, um, we're just about to. I'm just about to start up again. Um, mm. I've got some warm ups uh, the uh, this weekend actually, and um, I I alternate between feeling. You're incredibly rusty and sort of wondering whether, you know, because when the pandemic started, there were a lot of articles about how this will change us forever. Lots of yeah. real chin strokey stuff. And I didn't really think it would. I, I think, I think, you know, things tend to return to the mean fairly quickly. Yeah. And 
And so I'm, but you know, it's gone on longer than I thought it would. And I'm in two minds as to, you know, what actually, how much actually will it change people? Although the gigs I've done, people are so keen to have a laugh and- uh, Yeah, I mean, in a way- the ne- sort of doesn't matter. The pessimistic side of me is already dreading the bit where that wears off. Wears off, yeah. Every, you know, the, the point where that wears off <laughs> is when everyone goes to their second gig and they're going, Oh yeah, they tend to speak to the guy in the in that bit of the audience, <laughs> and they remember they remember right. all our devious tricks. Exactly, it turns out it's just people talking. It's just yeah. the, sort of the sort of Ed, three weeks into the Edinburgh Fringe, there's this sort of moment where all the audiences go, "Oh, it's just people talking. It's just a it's just a it's a bloke or a woman talking. Oh, that's all it is. All oh, right, okay. There is no said, there is no magic here." <laughs> would you, if we was having that fair chat. You said something which I thought I really wanted to pick up on was about. You know, yeah. the audience thinking that, you know, they're your mate. And I, I sort of forget that about stand-up. Is it is a social interaction writ large, isn't it? Yeah. That's what you yeah. forget. And they have a different relationship with you than, than you do with them. But it is meaningful, isn't it? Absolutely. And, uh, and I always, I mean, I always think, um, I mean, so much of the way people talk about comedy, if you read, if you read about it in a newspaper, is, is completely wrong-headed. There's this thing that people will tell you that comedy relies on surprise. I think mm. that could, I think that could not be um, that could not be more wrong. Comedy relies on trust. Mm. It doesn't rely that the audience trust you. You trust them. You trust them with the things you're saying. They trust you to to, to say things to make you laugh. Um, and and then if you it, it, there's an endless confusion. I think when people talk about comedy between means and ends. And, you know, there was a lot of talk, it was about 10 years ago, really, where there was an awful lot of talk about, you know, comedy's job is to push the boundaries. No, no, that's one of the things at comedy's disposal yeah. is pushing the boundaries. You know, because Tim Vine isn't interested in pushing boundaries, as far as I can tell, mm. but he's incredibly funny. So, uh, you, you know, you can't, you, you can't judge him by that standard because that's simply, it's just a way of doing it, the, the yeah. boundary pushing thing. It's not, it's not the thing. And I think just as and 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 the, the same the same applies to to to, to you know the, an audience trusts you you I mean I find that when I'm writing a new show I write it with the audience they're my writing partner because they'll tell me which bits are funny yeah and then they'll tell me which bits aren't they'll tell me which bits are too long and they'll tell me which bits are too slow and you write the show together and it's about it's about trust it's not about shock and surprise there are no. things you can do there are things you can use but they aren't the point of the thing and the secret of comedy. It's not to, uh, shock or surprise. No, I mean, you say not. about pushing the boundaries. Actually, a lot of the, the most successful comedy is sort of manning the boundaries, reinforced in and, and barricading the boundaries. I mean, I, I was sort of thinking about, you know, you, most of the articles you get in the broadsheets now are about woke versus anti-woke. But I think yeah. if you could sort of rank the things that make people laugh the hardest, it would usually be any one of three from uh, observational comedy, yeah. physical comedy and crowd yeah. work. I think those are the things that really tend to get like when you when you see like somebody who's got physical comedy, like Lee Mack said a while ago about yeah. comedy dying below the neck. That's when you really get a room rocking with laughter, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And again, these are all these are all things at your disposal. I mean, Steve Martin talks about, you, you know, he talks about using every last bit of your body to tell the joke. So mm. thinking about where your little, what you're doing with your little finger, right down to that sort of level. And I think if you find a physical voice for the way you perform as much as a, your actual voice, you enhance the, the 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 comic picture that you're painting. And mm. I, I, and so that's that's as important as anything else. I mean, I, I I mean, if I have to read another one of those articles, 
the, 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 the industry in those articles is an industry in itself, aside from the comedy industry. It's a yeah. debate with it. Those articles tend to be a debate with themselves rather than a debate that, as far as I can tell, bears any relation to any of my experiences in comedy in the best part of 30 years. Well, when because you, I mean, after all, what they're talking about, and mm. the thing to remember is they're talking about how tastes change. That's all well, they're you, talking I mean, if about. You, even if you just look at the shows that, I mean, obviously I am, you know, a political comic as such, but I mean, if you yeah. come to one of my tour shows, that's just a, a component, maybe a third of yeah. what that hour yeah. would be. But if you look at the shows that sort of snare the biggest audiences, none of them yeah. are per, topical comedies. I mean, I don't know how much people are aware. They struggle to get regularly above a million viewers a week, which, yeah. when you, which is still decent. But you look at something like Would I Lie to You, what, three and a half, four million it's got nothing to do with the world that's happening around it. I mean, if anything, an episode of Would I Lie to You could air any time ever. Yeah, yeah. And it would still yes, but be I think that. But I think that's that that you know uh, points back to the you know the thing that smart people need to remind themselves of is that most people aren't interested in politics. Yeah, that they, they are. They are when it. They are when it. Um, that they aren't affected with the daily tumble of the thing. They aren't, they, or they aren't interested in the daily tumble of the thing. They aren't interested in what what Boris said about Dominic Cummings. That the sort of the stuff that gets people agitated. They are not interested in it, and uh, 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 they, it's not that they couldn't care less. It's just they're not interested in it. They know it. They know it. Kind of maybe it matters, but not yeah. on that tit for tat daily level. Because because after all, I think a lot of that for a lot of people substitutes for gossip anyway rather than um yeah i mean the coming the coming stuff has been incredible in a way where i think that i think you're absolutely right the public are smart enough to know what the big ticket issues are right i definitely have to give a shit about this like blatant um hypocrisy did 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 the government pay wages during fellow the really big stuff but the idea that in the process of government that someone who acts like a bit of a mad bastard anyway, like Boris, said some mad shit in the heat of the moment. I, I just, I just don't think that was a, a massive surprise to anybody. You know, no, you no, say no, and I know, but then there are there are people who say, oh well, it's yeah, it's priced in with Boris, isn't it? And isn't that disgusting? Well, that's a different that's a different discussion. But the fact, Absolutely, the truth yeah. is, the truth is, it is priced in. So what are you going to do about that? And 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 you know the, the sort of. The endless circle of about uh, 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 everyone does this. This isn't. This isn't. Uh, I mean, I'm not being partisan in this at all. Everyone heaps shit on each other and expects that mm. to change the argument. Whereas, in fact, all it does is satisfy the urge to heap shit on each other. You know? Yeah. And, and, and there's a lot of you know. There's a lot. <laughs> there's a lot of high-minded talk around quite low-minded things. I mean, for instance, mm. in the pandemic, one of the things that I've found really interesting is watching the mechanism of people not liking a thing and then trying to turn it into a, ma- a question of high principle. I don't like wearing a mask, right? Yeah. I don't like it. It bugs me. It's annoying. But I understand that on the balance of probabilities, I've probably got to do it, right? I don't, on the other hand, feel the need to... Um, elevate my not liking wearing a mask into being a yeoman of the free peoples of England being stifled in his liberties because because that's not what it is I don't like wearing a mask and it's the same way if someone doesn't find one of your jokes funny if they want to elevate the position because that sounds passive it sounds wet saying I don't think that's funny whereas if you say I'm offended by that or you shouldn't be saying that you're in an active mode and it's the same mechanism and and saying you're saying your liberties are being crushed because you have to wear a mask, it's the same as saying that joke is offensive and shouldn't be allowed to be said. It's the same mechanism. Turning something that's a question of like taste, basically, yeah. actually, into a matter of a matter of um, 
a burning principle that no one can truly argue with. You, you know what I mean? And, and yeah, yeah, watching like... that happen, is uh, seeing that mechanism transposed um, in the pandemic has been very, very interesting. Well, it's like the safety thing now. There are a lot of arguments whereby if somebody wants great attraction for a point of view, and this would maybe happen on perhaps the, the more risk-averse end of the COVID debate where yeah, yeah. they'll just quote unsafety, where your actions or your words are making me feel unsafe. But again, like yeah. you say, it's kind of a code for there's an argument here and I really want to fucking win it. And I'm going to launch everything yeah. in my yeah. arsenal uh, yeah. to get this over the line. But that, that, but you know, the precautionary principle, you know, uh, it, the, I mean, very often I often think some, some ideas, you know, when they start out, they're sort of okay. And then they get off reservation um, uh, and they don't, and they don't make any sense anymore. Mm. Um, I had someone quite a while ago, quite a while ago, I did a, I did a, um, a radio thing called seven day Saturday, seven day Sunday. And um, one of the things I was really interested in was um, not what people thought necessarily, but, mm. What I was interested in was him being funny. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, I did some interviews going, what I really want is a satire show where we're funny about everything rather than, mm. rather than people coming on the show and telling me what they think. And that got like, oh, you obviously would have, you like the Tories. And I went, no, I believe as a comedian, I'm supposed to hang shit on everybody. And yeah. you, you know, if the Tory, and there's a problem here because if the Tories are so self evidently evil as we keep being told, why can't Labour defeat them? Well, maybe it's because Labour is a clown car. Maybe you maybe you need to consider that. Um, you you know what I mean, right? And I don't think yeah. I don't think this I don't think that's at all um, uh, uh, like um, red meat as, as opinions go, especially as a working comedian. Where you, well, yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm supposed to take the piss out of everybody, right? And I got all sorts of flack. And I even had someone say that me doing jokes about Ed Miliband was punching down. And I thought, right, okay, I'm, a, I'm just a comic. He literally wants to be prime minister. He literally is leader of the opposition. He's, yeah. you know, he's potentially the most powerful man in the country. You know, it, that is not punching down. I just thought, and that's because some guy looks at my background because since I go to public schools, been on Wikipedia, sees the stuff about stuff about my family on Wikipedia that I didn't know until it was on Wikipedia. Right? They put this stuff up, and they go, well, he's posh, and Ed Miliband's less posh than him. Yeah. Therefore, that's punching down, and you think. Okay, the problem now is that the idea of punching up and punching down is off reservation. It's in the hands of people that this idea is not useful to. <laughs> it's the same as unsafe, isn't it? It's it's a quick yeah. shorthand for I can exclude uh, this person from from the argument and and these kind yeah. of almost like childlike notions of what punching up and down as, as if there's just this one establishment. I mean, a well, lot of people. Well, exactly, because because we live in a pluralistic, multifaceted, multicultural democracy where power sluices about in all sorts of different ways and appears in different places. And and anyone, the moment anyone gets any, of course, they try to entrench that power. And mm. I'm not going to use the word privilege to try to entrench that power, build mm. it around them, and build a little fortress to protect to to hang on to it. And that's completely. That's what that's what people have mm. done since the world began. You know, that's that's humans and and to, to the problem with the punching up punching down thing is you know uh is it is it, it let's just say i am because i am from what was an upper class family is now an upper probably an upper middle class family so we're downwardly mobile which i thought we all wanted to happen so i'm i'm, I'm <laughs> you're doing your down. bit you're doing your I'm bit doing exactly i'm doing my bit you know my, my my dad went to work for the railway work for a nationalized railway his whole life you know what yeah. what do these people fucking want right anyway and uh, and uh, and yeah, if I yeah if I am I not allowed to take the and let's say for example the X Factor massive show that must be work, watched by lots of working class people right yeah. must be has working class contestants on it am I not allowed to take the piss out of that because of 
No, of course, of course I am, because it's part. It's a massive fun part of the culture I live in, in general, right? Mm. You know what I mean? This is the problem. You know, if you apply punching up, punching down, you to that, you're being stupid. You just, you just the idea is off reservation. I think. You know what? You know what I mean? You spoke a, a, a bit ago about when you started thirty years ago, and I think this is an interesting point to mention. It is that you were coming in off the back of that very righteous late 80s alternative circuit. And then, you know, in the 90s, it did get the sense that with people like yourself, Harry Hill and Frank Skinner, that comics were going, maybe we should be funny again. (laughs) Was that something you were conscious of at the time? um, I, well, um, yeah, actually. um, (laughs) I, yeah, absolutely. Um, And this is going to, I mean, this it's the strange things that sort of form you in a way is, Whatever my, the thing is, the other thing is, whatever my political affiliations are, right? And, and I've always tried to actually not say what they are, mm. right? Because, because that's not the point. The point is I'm a comedian, right? I'm not an activist, I'm a comedian, right? Um, and, and I think, you know, but if you look at what I do, maybe you could, although lots of people look at what I do and get completely the wrong end of the stick, which is, I think, which I love. I love the, I love the, the confusion. I love the ambivalence. I love that, that, that some people just can't read what I'm doing at all. I like that. I think yeah. comedy should be confusing and mischievous and troublesome and yeah, amb- ambiguous, yeah, and, and ambiguous and all those things. Anyway, um, but I remember <laughs> this is going to sound this is going to sound ridiculous, right? But like I said, my dad worked for British Rail his entire life, right? Um, after university, he went in and they did the thing where they had to work the signal box and work the wheel, right? and he ended up he was in management. He used to work in rail freight in the in the railway, right? Mm. Like organising macro freight stuff you know however the, i mean i've never you know and i took one look at him getting up at five in the morning and going in and getting home at nine o'clock at night and thought that's not for me right yeah, but <laughs> exactly yeah. right and a, a, a big part a big part of how i've ended up doing this is to not have to get up in the mornings you know which obviously sometimes when you're filming or whatever backfires horribly but mm. he it, there was that ben elton routine where ben elton did the whole thing about got to get a double seat double seat double seat got to get a double seat where he talks about getting on a train you can't get a double seat and it drives you mad right which is a which is a stone cold piece of observational comedy and was really really funny right Mm. about how to get on a train and he ended that routine with don't blame the workers blame the management right (laughs) and i remember thinking well my dad is the management right yeah and uh the 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 the, what he's told me about chronic underinvestment in uh consecutive Labour and Conservative governments over the yeah. last 20 years really, really leads me to feel that simply saying don't blame the workers, blame the management is possibly not very, not, not, not particularly honest. Right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and I don't, and, and I didn't like it. And I remember sort of thinking, why has he done that? That was really hmm. funny. Why has he done that? And, you know, that, that's the thing that was really stuck with me for many, many years is obviously, and obviously, but. The thing that really, the thing that happened in the early 90s, in 1991, was Vic and Bob. Mm. They are the thing where I thought, where they basically announced you had license to dick about. Because I got into this to dick about, really, to try and be as ridiculous as possible, to try and be as silly as possible. Because I'm from a very, my background's very straight, it's very serious. It's very like, and the school I went to, it was all about being serious. And and while I was at school, developed sort of questions about authority, and you know, because I because I I liked it, but I also realised it was essentially arbitrary, right? And all these sort of things went to the yeah. pot, go in the pot. But it was Vic and Bob. Vic and Bob sort of fired a flare above the whole thing and went, "You can be, you can be totally ridiculous if you want to. You can do whatever you like as long, uh, and be funny." And um, 
you know, I think I was I was probably arriving at that sort of I was headed in that direction. But what sometimes what you need is someone to say out loud, hey, it's okay. Because it was very, very, very um, you know, that you're, you know, and all that. And of course, yeah. she, by the time I'd started, she'd gone. Well, she just she'd just gone. So that suddenly didn't quite have its power anymore. Yeah, that was a really interesting thing. Was John Major was a bit like, you know, one of those conservatives that's co complicated for the left. Because I can remember spitting image trying to get their teeth into him and struggling a little bit. I mean, they were very... Well, we were talking about that yesterday, because I'm writing on that. We were talking, you know, the American producer, producer that goes, oh, great, so the joke is he's boring. Okay, what are we going to do with that? You know, like he thought, <laughs> he thought, you know, what... Did they solve a problem there or simply create one with that? Well, yeah, he was the little grey man. And I remember yeah. that was effective because when I actually saw him in person, he wasn't little at all. He's a very big, thick set man. Yeah. And, and but it didn't, they I think they did a joke about him, a song which was you just can't hate John Major. Yeah. For yeah. All the crap things that he's done. Um yeah. so that's interesting. I'd never really thought about the fact that that, that created you well, know, it's a bit like the spell, the spell broke a little. You know, and also yeah. the other thing about him is he was he, is he tried to be emollient, he tried to be conciliatory, his style's so different. And you know, yeah. he's the guy who's he's the guy whose dad ran away from the circus. You know, he's like well, he's, I went to the same school as him, uh Rutledge well, there you in, are. In, in Wimbledon. So when you know, and I mentioned it in, in, in the book, God, that's such a fucking cliche in it. But as I mentioned in the book, but it said, What do they do with a, a working class kid from Brixton? Well, they made him prime minister. And it was almost a bit like now where Yes, there are these issues that the Conservatives have around, you know, their perception on immigration, but there are a hell of a lot of British Asians in powerful positions. And it's you can still come up with a conclusion that that, that doesn't necessarily paper over certain things, but you at least have to reckon with that sort of transparent yeah. reality. Yeah and, yeah, it, yeah. and and you're right, like that that must have been a big impact breaking down that simplistic view. Was there pushback at that time? Because obviously now we get the sense that comedy, this is the first time that co comedy's ever been morally self-righteous. At that time, was there... <laughs> it certainly was morally self-righteous then. I mean, the thing, yeah. this is the thing is, you know, again, tastes change. So you have you have a long period of where everyone's political and then tastes change. I mean, mm. th th so much of this is about changing taste rather than rather than rather than anything else you know audiences in the end go yeah okay fine can we have something else you know because ed eddie Izzard, for instance you know who really dominated the 90s with his sort of whimsical mm. surrealism you know then it, it then turns out that actually he's quite political in his in his in his own life rather than or, or uh, you know you, you know what i mean so yeah. things things tastes change and i think so often you see people really trying to grip and hold um the way they want the world to be in in comedy and they're, you know, it's all, it's King Canute. It's the, the taste will change, the title go out, the title come back in. You, 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 you know what I mean? And that's mm. not to say, don't do your own thing, don't do, don't do what you want to do to to anyone starting out. But but also consider taste will change. That that you know, every now and again there's an eclipse, the phases of the moon. It's sort of, it's just it's just one of these. It's just one of those things you kind of got to like. Except happens. I think what you know, one of the things I've just uh, this is maybe an arrogant thing, but I sort of see where I am is right bang smack in the middle of British politics, not to the right actually, but if, if you think yeah. about social things. So I tend to quite often feel how the public feel. That's partly why I talk about these things because I'm just yeah. in space as well. And the sense I got is that most people want to stop fucking arguing. I think that'll be yeah. the, the most sort of like biggest priority of, of comedy is to not argue and and you do get the sense with some of these people that you know like you know like that japanese uh soldier that was still fighting the war in, yeah, in yeah. 1970 is like some people like the war you know 
and they don't <laughs> they've got a certain kind of shell shock that rather than face that yeah and 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 I think do you get the sense that that's where like all the broad audience is moving on to, or maybe maybe they never even left. I don't. I, I you know I well I don't know I don't know where the where the broad audience because one of the problem one of the issues is is where the broad audience is they're not always necessarily offered the thing they want right mm. because because after all there's the there's the critical establishment there's the people who mm. make a commission and then there's the and then there's the comedians and then there's the audience you know there's four things all interacting with each other. And, you know, audiences very often go off and find the thing they want without um, asking permission, which is the sort of, um, you know, the, w- mm. one of the paradoxes for those other gatekeepers in this sort of relationship, you know, is that, I mean, Mrs. Brown's Boys is a fantastic example of the audience going, actually, we like that. Thanks very much. Yeah. And, and you know, uh, and the audience, the audience loving it, the people who commissioned it, you know, made a brilliant, it was a brilliant decision. No, no two ways about it. If what you want is a big broad comedy, they pick the big, big broad comedy. You know, they got it right. Critical establishment, not being able to bear it. And quite a lot of other comedians really yeah. not, really not liking it. But what can you do? You know, um, the audience, the audience decided, the audience went to it, found it, liked it. And of course, the other thing is, you know, and it, it, again, we come back to sort of the idea of pluralism, of plurality. There are many, many audiences and they all laugh at different things, and they very often they laugh at the different things for the different reasons, even within that one audience. You know, I get people say to me, "Oh, you know, you're you're you got people who come to your show who, who agree with the pub landlord." And I say, "Well, maybe they do, but maybe they're laughing at themselves." Absolutely, maybe, yeah. Maybe that's a possibility because I thought, you know, one of the things that's regarded as a as a, regarded as a sort of an admirable characteristic in people is their ability to laugh at themselves, hmm. right? So. So no, I, mean, I think that you, that you know what I mean. No, I do because I think you know if they, if you look at like observational comedy. So there's a simple routine that I do about women leaving things on the bottom step of the stairs, and imagining it to be some sort of stargate to move shit to the bathroom <laughs> cabinet. But men and women laugh at that, and that's that exact reason. It's like yeah. I do that. I say that. Isn't it a bit ridiculous? You know, and yeah. it holds up a mirror. But again, it's it's about whether or not people really think that that's the case with your audience, or simply it's like the oh, I find this unsafe argument where they're. Well, just- I find I find it gets wheeled out of me, and and, and, and as a in an accusatory tone, mm. and I if I and I think well, I think well, that's that sounds pretty funny to me, right? If they're fooled, that's funny, isn't it? That's. The, I'm a comedian. I'm a prankster. So, yeah. so that's a joke, isn't it? That's another. That's another layer to the joke, isn't it? Isn't that? Isn't that a good thing? Yeah. And and they've not thought of that. I mean, very often when people come to me with that, they think they're the first person since 1994 <laughs> to have thought of it too. And that, and that, <laughs> you know, that's gonna that's gonna that's gonna shut me down. I know, the, just, I just say for the listener, you did a brilliant blowing the smoke off each guns there. Yeah. No. <laughs> there's so many of those arguments. Like, do you remember back when the Iraq War happened, and you'd always have the person that go, "Look, you know, you know, it's actually about oil." You go, "Yes." Everyone thinks yeah. it's about oil. That's the yeah. fucking mainstream opinion. Or, or when someone yeah. say like about Prince Harry, you go, "I don't think Charles is his dad." You go, "This is not. A, this is no longer a countercultural view." Or thinking that you too are shit. This is now the majority view. <laughs> yeah, I mean, absolutely. Who's his dad? About Harry? I mean, fucking hell, really? Are we still? Are we still doing this? Absolutely. That's very funny. Yeah, those, I, those, those devastating. You know, they think that they're devastating <laughs> arguments, but. I, I I think you're right as well. You know, when you look at what Kaufman did, like if that uncertainty was sort of a big part of it, when he did the the wrestler character, who's a bit of a misogynist, yeah. right? Yeah. Maybe there was a little bit of him that sometimes thought, oh, this is fun. Yeah, it's nice. It is a bit funny to chide women in this way. Maybe, 
some somebody did need to prick the pomposity of 1970s yeah. feminism. It yeah. doesn't stop it being, you know, artistic or funny. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, and and of course, why are the people who are saying comedy's job is to um, uh, uh, push the boundaries not rushing to that to defence of that idea? Because very often the people who say comedy's job is to push the boundaries, they go, yeah, but not that boundary. Oh, <laughs> yeah. No, thanks, not that one. Oh yeah. no, you know, we I didn't mean that boundary. And 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 the then very often it's the trouble is some comedian, you know, the the poor but comedian besieged the situation, tries to explain what they were trying to do, and then they and then it fucked. It's dead. Yeah, the frog is dead. You yeah, does yeah, sense yeah. it. Yeah, well, yeah, the frog the the frog dies when it sees the scalpel of fright. It doesn't. It's not. You don't even have to dissect the frog. Well, I th I I think as well when you know when they sort of obviously I get a degree of that as well. And I, I don't mind what people think, but what is odd, I think, is that they wouldn't notice any hyperbole in someone if the right. jokes were broadly what they agreed with. So they would think that, you know, when someone says, oh, Theresa May is an evil fascist. They go, well, I'm, I don't think that you really think that. But there's a massive degree of hyperbole there. But because it makes you feel yeah. good, you haven't interrogated whether or not the left wing comedian is doing the same thing. I mean, you know, hyperbole, hyperbole. <laughs> Again, is off reservation, isn't it? Yesterday, I got into a Twitter argument yesterday with someone talking about vaccine apartheid. And I said, you're only using the word apartheid because of its power to do with, mm. you know, the the, the, the the criminal regime in South Africa back in the day that was racist. That's the only reason you use it. And he goes, no, it's a, it's a, it's an Afrikaans word that means separation. Said, yeah, but that's not why you're using it. You're, you're, you're yeah. using it because of its power and because of its force. And that's why I think you're silly and unserious. Stop it. Right. And I'll talk a lot. If you want to argue about the rights and wrongs of vaccination and what, how it impinges on your liberties, we can do that. And you can because they'd assumed that I was um, in favor of vaccination. Plus, but they never asked me what I thought. Hmm. I just because I just said, don't use the word apartheid. Silly. You've you've, yeah. you've overcooked it, I'm afraid. And you're not serious. And you're not. I, I can't take you seriously. And at no point did the guy go. All right. OK, fine. In, in which case, fine. Let's let's let's. Let's take the heat out of that and we can discuss it seriously. And this is the problem. It's like, like I say, it's hyperbole sort of off reservation and people are, I mean, although, again, this is the thing of, um, this is the problem with social media. You know, my mother's not on social media. I can yeah. talk to her like this and she thinks I'm insane. When Brexit happened, um, I mean, you, I, I remember, like, obviously, I followed your career for a long time yeah. and, and you were doing stuff as yourself more there. What yeah. did, did Brexit... Was it? Did it make the character a bit more complicated? And was was you doing other stuff more as yourself? A, a reaction to that, or or do you wanted to sort of disentangle no, yourself a bit? Anyway? No, no, no. I mean, the reason, the reason, the reason I was doing more stuff was myself. Uh, two reasons. Um, the pub landlord, um, uh, I think, is just too hard for some people in television to get their head around. Yeah. Simple as that. I've had a, I've had a very, very weird um, stop-start um, career doing him on the telly. Um, uh, I've been to meetings where people, when I start talking like this, they're like, what? They don't realize, they don't realize it's a turn. They don't, don't realize I'm not like that. And you think, oh, come on. Like, fucking honestly, really? Right? Yeah. And that's happened, that's happened enough for it to be, and, and I, I sort of understand why. And also after all, I've been around a long time. So new people, I understand, you know, anyone, anyone in this business who's been around a while and, and sort of objects to new people getting on is being is a being unrealistic and b being sort of like well you and you once like come on uh, uh, you know cut your younger self a break here sort of thing right anyway so I've I sort of I think the pub landlord the, the maroon blaze has been around it's been around a bit long so I started to do other stuff and all, but also the other thing of doing things as myself has really helped with the fact that it's obviously a character right um, yeah, yeah. and help make that distinction for some people 
and also doing myself no one really you know I'd kept the guard up for so long that doing it was fresh and genuinely surprising and different for people right on the other hand I won't do panel shows and all that. I'm not interested right hmm. never never done that not interested in doing panel shows. I'd, I'd, I'd you know say yeah I'll do it as a pub landlord and they go no we don't want that and they're like well then I'm not doing it because that's the me that's me the comedian that's hmm. the comedian me the other me is for other things maybe or whatever I don't know right anyway but but what Brexit did well so 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 the sort of um what, I mean, it's really interesting because I read, a, there's this book, Andrew Hankinson wrote a book about, um, you know, the American comedy circuit and censorship and all that sort of stuff the year before last. Mm. He had a bit of a start with Stuart Lee, and Stuart Lee, my old sparring partner, Stuart Lee, at the start of the book saying, well, you know, the Brexit has destroyed the pub landlord because now it's happened. You think, Stu, or, or the thing I was talking about for a really long time is now the most important thing in the country, right? And so <laughs> I've, I've, always, I've always been right. I've always, I was always dead on target actually right or whatever anyway but no it didn't make things difficult because what it really was really really what was really really interesting is the pub landlord had finally got what he wanted and that that is an interesting thing for people who have been banging on about one thing for farage has finally got what he what he wants you know uh ian duncan smith has finally got what he wants now what is it and i think that's uh you know it's the in in lots of ways what what happened with the brexit referendum it's the it's the la, it's the closing frames of the graduate, you know, when they're driving away from the wedding, and they're like, "What do we do now?" <laughs> Fuck. Okay, just interrupt the chat briefly there, Val. I trust that you're enjoying it. I know I was. Um, just hype in the tour now. The tour, which is, I mean, with all the numbers going as they are. And so, oh, by the way, a few people have asked me about, Jeff, what are you going to do if vaccination passports exist for your theatre venues? So firstly, as things stand, there's nothing that would affect my uh, venues. Obviously, uh, I'm against them. Secondly, the other thing is, is the contract that I've got with these venues doesn't have any sort of provision for uh, what would happen if the government, in the midst of a pandemic, introduced vaccine passports. So uh, let's see what happens. I don't think that the venues are the size I'm going to do them would be subject to that. But it's certainly a conversation that I can have with venues as, you know, putting together the spring leg of the tour. Um, just a, qu- a few venues that I'm going to for the first time is the Queen's Theatre in Barnstable on the 10th of September. What is Barnstable? Is that is that is that proper sort of fuck your sister sort of territory? Is there out there? Well, I see <laughs> <laughs> no one of those ones where you're careful where you speak to the punters go are you 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 two related or are you a couple or, you, or is it both um tuesday the 28th of september northampton you'd think that i would have done gigs there before but uh, i haven't i'm looking forward to doing that for the first time on a tuesday uh wednesday i'm doing the southport comedy festival uh, i did a tour show in southport before but not part uh, of the festival uh, and it's sold out there we're playing a slightly bigger room this time but i'm hoping to see as many people up there a lot of people moan to me about why are you going up north have you got something against the north yeah yeah i have a bit yeah some of it is shit that's me <laughs> i'm going in a nice place it's not the shit holes um so yeah we're going up to victoria park uh, in Southport. Uh, and then just finally, I mean, there's loads of dates and stuff, but these are just a few that I'm picking out, is the Old Rep Theatre in Birmingham. That's on a Thursday, the 28th of October. And I'm very excited about that venue. It's got a long, prestigious record of having loads of great acts there. And what now? They love you, will they, Jeff? <laughs> Thank you, imaginary Brummy heckler in my head. I'm not even sure I could do Brummy anymore. you you got to go a bit, bit Jess Phillips, innit? You come around my place, babe. You come around and I'll show you some pot noodles and some yum yams. <laughs> okay, look, I've got my back in. Uh, let's get back into the chat with the brilliant Al Murray. 
I mean, the other, the other, I mean, the stuff I was, do, you know, here's the thing is last March we were about to go out on tour and I, I had the show from 2019, which, you know, which is the last squeeze of the lemon of the Brexit debate, you know, because Boris wins that Christmas. Mm. The, the, they then go, right, we've got Brexit done. Basically to shut down the, 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 what, what is it, that endless, what is it thing? And I had a thing about how, you know, the, the about how the British had, would live, forever in 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 human history because they'd finally invented perpetual energy because the brexit debate at that point was literally a source of perpetual energy because yeah, yeah. it generated endless heat heat and light yet no one knew what it was really about um it was perfectly balanced so you you know like for the ironic balance of to to, to protect parliamentary sovereignty they closed parliament it's like it, <laughs> it, it was just it was just sort of you know we 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 wanted to control our borders but we haven't got any because we're on an island but the, we, we forgot about another border that is on an island, you know, like, <laughs> like the sort of, the sort yeah. of like, you know, you know that meme of the, the head exploding at the end. So the, the, as it gets cleverer and cleverer. It's, yeah. So I had, that was what the show was kind of about, was like about, this is the sort of orgasmic uh, ecstasy of, of everything, of, of, of ironic collisions and how, and how sort of beautiful it is and dazzling. And mm. I, you don't, don't even dare look. It's the most beautiful thing ever created. Because the, the other thing is, I'm not. I'm. I'm not. I'm as not interested as anyone else going on stage for two hours and going, "Oh, what fucking nightmare this all is." Not interested mm. in doing that. Find a funny way of talking about it. You know, yeah, and and audience before I, you even before you even put the character on top of it, find a funny way of talking about it because they're there. They're there to have a laugh rather than be browbeaten or whatever. Well, and I don't think even you know even the people you would call out and out hard p political comics. I don't think they would ever have devoted the majority of any of their shows to talking about politics because what is often called political comedy is is seems to be using uh, politics as a way of making a joke about people, isn't it? It's very rare. You know, well, yes, satire. I mean, well, but this is, but well, this is the way you, you've just you went, you took the word right out of my mouth. Satire, topical comedy, um, uh, piss taking. I mean, Chris Morris says that you know the, the, the distinction between satire and and uh, piss taking essentially is is, is basically semantic. Hmm. That 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 you know that that it, it's just satire is satire is has a levels. You, you, you know, is. It, or the, or, I mean, I always think the really, really interesting thing about the way people talk about satire um, is they is they talk about, um, you know, beyond the fringe was when satire was invented. Well, you know, Romans might have something to say about that. But, right, the Goon Show, um, which ran for 10 years in the, the bulk of the 50s, was written by, uh, 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 you know, Spike Milligan, who was from an Irish family, had been in India and then he fought in the war. And he was, he was very much blue collar, right? Mm. Wanted to be a musician, right? Was not... Um, like uh, uh, Pete Cook, son of an ambassador, destined to go to the Foreign Office. Those those people. The Goon Show is a rum, you know, is as a robust a satire of fifties post-war Britain as anything you'll ever run into. It's the fact that they all talk in stupid voices and do fart noises and everything. Yeah. And and that he is not posh. That means it's not uh, not regarded as a satire. Right. Along comes Peter Cook posh going, I think the government's bloody awful. You know, the government's awful, isn't it? Harold Macmillan, a ridiculous figure. Oh my God, mind blowing. <laughs> it's, it's basically because, you know, he'd done it to his own. It, 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 you know, he, he, he was taking the mickey out of his own tribe, as it were. Yeah. And that's why it's suddenly, that's why that's elevated satire. What Milligan spends 10 years pulling the class system apart, standing on its head. Um, you know, the idea of war and sacrifice. And, you know, I mean, there's, a, there's an awful lot of cowardice in, um, in the goon show not long after the war of majors running away and people not wanting to fight and all this sort of thing yeah and you'd think well 
you know, the, now we view as the war as this sort of sacred event that no one dare criticize. But in the 50s, he's literally going at the whole thing. He's literally mm. getting his rage out of his system. And that's not regarded as satire, whereas Cook is. So satire, what people, what people think satire is satire, serious in the end after all, it's not funny. Mm. <laughs> you know, it's it, it's good for you. It's like it's like going, it's like eating Weetabix or something. It's not, you're not meant to enjoy satire, you're supposed to be elevated by it, aren't you? And I think that's that's daft. You know, I think that, that we're in the comedy business. And again, satire is another means to an end. The end is making people laugh. Satire is one of the things you can do, like pushing boundaries or doing puns or falling over or or being observational, you know. But you're absolutely right. People use, people tend to go, you know, you know, if they've got a fat politician, they, cut, they rub their hands with glee, don't they? Because it saves them having to know what he thinks. Yeah, it's just, that's, those are jokes about fat people and, and jokes about Boris Johnson's kids are jokes about bad fathers. They're not about... Yeah. Boris Johnson, the sort of political entity. I mean, you talk yeah. about like the respect and you know various levels of snobbery uh, in in comedy. You know, like I, I mean, I've seen yourself at the Edinburgh Festival. I mean, just like yeah. smashing it on a level so high. You know, people like you know when Lee, Lee uh, Simon was doing Lee Nelson character. Yeah. And like you just thought, and then you would read like I mean, like you know, you you got good responses and stuff. But I always still felt like like ad libs, crowd work, never really got the respect that they deserved. It's just something like. The, the average critic can't see what how hard that fucking is. You know what I mean? And in the moment you make something look easy, they think it must be easy, which has got to be the dumbest reaction to something hard. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I got into I got into crowd work because um uh, one of the first people I ever saw in Edinburgh, like in 1990, I think, when I was there on a up with the student company, was Julian Clary, and he used to, he used to do it really, really. He did it really, really well. Although I ex- expect. Um, you know, when you first see a thing, you think, my God, how is he doing that? That's incredible, you know? Yeah. Uh, and actually, I think it was probably the, it was probably the same every night, but I, 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 I don't know, right? But I got into it because I, I did some club gigs with the landlord where I kind of got stuck because you're in character, right? And a char- the character, why wouldn't he react to that the situation he's in? Why wouldn't he talk to the people? It's more in character to do crowd work with the pub landlord. Than, than not to come on and go hello mate you're right that's what he'd do because he's because yeah, he's landlord <laughs> yeah exactly he's not a stand-up comedian either so he doesn't know the he doesn't necessarily know the rules he doesn't know that you don't do that he doesn't know that you're, you're supposed to talk about yourself he doesn't know uh uh he, he doesn't know that he's supposed to say oh man i had a tough time getting here he doesn't know any, you know doesn't know any of the any of that why would he right and he would go god fuck me your shirt mate's terrible he would do that he would, mm. and he would say to a couple, "How long you've been together?" I bet she, you know, I bet, I bet, I bet he's a nightmare, isn't he? That's what he'd do, right? Mm. And action speaks to character more than anything else. Um, and stand-ups do this anyway. They do, they, you know, the jokes they tell tell you what they are like, and then you decide whether you trust them or not, whether you like them, and then you laugh at their jokes, right? That's the simple chain process. But I thought the way I, the way I'm going to make this character much more real and realistic is to is to do lots of crowd work and to really get really dig into the crowd work and really really concentrate on how to do it mm. and um and uh, and it and it's sort of become i mean actually the last show i did i did half an hour before i did the crowd work because i was i thought i've got to stop i've actually got to you know uh because they love it so i need to hold back on it so i do a whole setting out stall like what's going on and then i go but before we do any of that i need to i need to know who's here i need to know you know you're only as good as a company you keep what you fuckers like basically right yeah and it but i think it's 
I, 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 you're absolutely right because sometimes things that are things that look easy um, do mean you get you. I mean, I, I, I love I love watching crowd work. I'm always dazzled by it. Mm. I, I, I love it. I love watching someone respond to the circumstances they've created. I love watching the, the fact that they, tonight's the night. You will not get the same crowd work tomorrow. And that's that's the other reason for doing it. It means tonight's the night. This show is completely unlike tomorrow mm. night's show because those people will not be there tomorrow. And I do do a thing where I find one, a couple of people as marks that I need for later on to reintegrate them, right? But I think that's that's fair game. And that's the thing I watched Skinner do like when I opened for him in like 92, 93 or something. And I learned that kind of filed that. But yes, it is, I, I, yeah, I, I do find, you know, there is a sort of level of. Sometimes you see people who've reached the level of craftsmanship, and it's not in, it's not included in their audit, and you sort of think, well, that's a bit shit. That is, you know. That's exactly it. That's such a great way of putting it. Where you go, like, well, you know, just because you wouldn't like if Cristiano Ronaldo scored another brilliant free kick, we go, well, you know, that's just what he does. Yeah. You, you would savor it and go, fuck me. That's yeah. 30, 30 yards yeah. out. And and exactly. that is that is you know, and it's hard to explain to people. I, I was writing something uh, recently. Oh, it's in the book, actually. Oh, sorry. Yeah. There he goes again. But I was trying to sort of <laughs> say that basically a lot of critics and a lot of the Edinburgh Fringe isn't massively fussed about being that funny. And he was like, stop. And he just didn't get it. And then I realized the problem between us was that that concept was really hard to understand for anybody. And if we work in the game, it's almost a given. We understand that being funny at the Edinburgh Fringe is not even arguably a massive priority anymore. And I was like, oh, shit, you know, people aren't going to understand that. I then have to write a bit about what changed, you know. I think the Edinburgh Fringe in, in the 90s, or certainly the people that broke out of it, were really, really funny. And yeah. then something happened in the mid-noughties where you've gone, all right, we've done funny now. <laughs> the, I think yeah, the but public again, I mean, it, fashions change, the tide will go out, the tide, yeah. you know, this is this is what happens. And Because uh, there were, you know, the, the, uh, you know, I remember reading a review of, of Ross Noble that said it's, it, you know, the extemporization, the improvisation is really, really funny, but is that the point? And you think, yes! No, you're absolutely right. And you know what I was also thinking is, is that there hasn't been an Edinburgh Fringe for two years, and I'm sitting here getting upset about critics. <laughs> oh, yeah, I know, I know. They, 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 yes, their power is eternal. Just before, I'm sure you got a crack on, mate. You mentioned... Um, yeah, that's right. I could talk all day. <laughs> in passing, you mentioned about the podcast. I cannot believe... Obviously, I was doing a bit of research. Yeah. Uh, I can't believe I only just discovered this podcast and listened to an episode of it, the most recent one, Walking My Dog. This is brilliant. This is... You know, I'm 44 now, and I've realised that thing that blokes have to do, which is get more interested in war. Yeah. I just accept that it's happened. And this yeah. is like, yeah, this is, this is two blokes that have got a way further ahead in the journey than me. And it's yeah. about loads of stuff to do. Is it, is it just the Second World War? Or is it? it does. We try to just talk about Second World War. Sometimes we do like aftermath. Mm. Sometimes we do build up. But we're only, we, the big joke is, you know, if, if anything, if anything's any, any day after VJ day. No, not interested. No, not, you know. <laughs> but, but, but basically, the, basically what it is, is, um, is James Holland, who is a, you know, a Second World War historian. He's the he's the real deal. And me, who's like the guy who's interested. Um, and I, uh, although I now feel um, after the last year and a half that I've done a, basically done, a, I'm doing an MA, I'm doing a master's in Second World War studies. Mm. Um, uh, and my mind has been <laughs> expanded and open to all this stuff. And what we also did, so when the first lockdown happened in March, I started recording out of print books. I'm doing audio books of out of print stuff. 
So mm. memoirs and uh, uh, a novelization that someone did and, and all this sort of stuff as, as a sort of kind of content thing. And we're, it's culminating in, in September, we're doing a festival. We're doing a thousand person festival in a field near Silverstone with 50 vehicles and stuff and tanks and stuff. And then all our favorite speakers from the festival. And I'm doing a gig on the Saturday night and we're, we're all gonna have a pint. All these people who basically we've been podcasting with, we're gonna have a pint together over the weekend. And it, and it's the whole thing's completely bananas. And we've, you know, how many years has it is it been going? Two. We've two been going years. two years, but it was really or a little bit more than two. But it was basically it was the first lockdown where we went right. Okay, I, I'm not on tour now. This is an opportunity. We need to we need to really grab this. And and so we doubled the content and started basically putting out putting out calls to all the kind of uh, people we're interested in, interesting academics or writers to talk about their sort of patch. Mm. And, and you, you know, the, the, the thing is, is it, the subject is literally a bottomless pit. We had a, we had a guy on this guy called Dr. Matthew Ford. I always bring him up because he's, he's the sort of the thing where you go, what really? How's he's a sociologist, right? Mm. But he's a sociologist, um, uh, a defense sociologist. So he, he's written this amazing book about rifles, right? And what a rifle, the rifle that a government, that an army gives a soldier, tells you about that society. And it's about what it thinks- I'm already in. <laughs> right? So it's like, so the Lee Enfield, the, you know, the Mark IV Lee Enfield, uh, short magazine Lee Enfield, whatever, whichever pattern, right? It's a very, very simple rifle to use. So built into that assumption is that soldiers need something really, really simple to use. As their primary weapon, they need something simple. Right. Because they're not very bright and you're not recruiting clever people. Right. And also you don't want an automatic weapon because then they'll just use all their ammunition up and they won't prize shooting accurately because it's all about shooting accurately. Right. So immediately you're into what what the army thinks of its men, what it, money it has to spend, what um, uh, what it thinks war might be like, what it based on what its previous experiences. Um, and all this stuff, start, and then what the engineering establishment can do, and the engineering establishment obviously going, well, we can make you that, but we can make you something else if you want, you know, and then the fact that in the British army, you have the Indian army lobby that always get forgotten, who are incredibly important because they're fighting in Afghanistan, the Hindu Kush, all that the whole time, right? So they've got their view on how you do things. And then the British army who've been in the Boer War, who've had a kicking and they, they don't know what they want. And you've got all these systems all clashing and people are, and, and, and out the other end pops this thing that everyone goes, oh, it's a classic. But the story of its genesis and the story of the forces at work around it and what it says about what they thought of their soldiers, i.e. they're pretty unreliable, you know, we can't mm. give them anything complicated, they're a bit thick. It's really, really, really interesting. So we're into that sort of stuff as much as, you know, Spitfires in the blue skies of Kent or whatever, or D-Day. Although, you know, the more we talk about D-Day, the more I realised I didn't know anything about it. I didn't know anything about it at all. I know half a dozen stories, but I don't know anything about it at all. I mean, this is what I think marks you out again was as different within the comedy community, is that you are you are fascinated and invigorated about this subject. There was, you know, there was a period with comedy where even admitting that you were like really interested or I mean look I went out to Afghanistan and yeah, I found yeah, yeah it, it was really exciting I, I, I wore it, it's an uncomfortable thing to say but it's a little bit sexy in a way and it would be yeah. it'd be idiotic not to mention that but there was a period in comedy you know where I realized maybe I was different from the circuit whereby the, the time I first went to Afghanistan there was this thing oh you know our soldiers are baby murderers and yeah. war criminals and stuff and then and then I met these people doing this job 
And I was like, oh, maybe some of these kind of orthodoxies that get handed down aren't quite secure. And and you follow that, that thread. I mean, it, it looks like at this point in your career, it would be fair to say that you're enjoying it more than ever because you've got like the war podcast. You're still doing the podcast. Yeah, I mean, yeah, certainly. I'm not sure. I'm not sure stimulus. I mean, that, that's the thing. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I mean, and it has been really, really interesting to actually to to. Because you know the pub landlord, he likes the Second World War because it's the few and giving the Germans a a, a, a a roasting and all that sort of thing, and he is the he is the sort of bloke who can't stop talking about it. But mm. as a subject, I mean, I often think people on the left, um, uh, who who don't take the subject seriously, are may, may be making an error because after all, the social contract, the bargain, the pact that was made between the British people and their governors, mm. um, that that. That the Second World War then manifests itself through the beverage report, and the beverage report is so important to the fact we have a welfare state and a national health service. That comes about because Churchill realised there are two things happening. The army aren't fighting very well, and one of the reasons is the men are going, well, why are we doing this? What's it for? Why am I in Burma? You know, what's that got to do with anything? What's that got to do with protecting my family? Why am I in North Africa? And we're not particularly motivated. And You know, all right, the Nazis are bad, but what's it got to do with us, right? And they don't, they're not performing very well. And they're basically, there's this essential question, which is what's in it for me, right? Mm. And, and after all, military service creates a communitarian spirit necessarily because you have to work together, right? So you end up with soldiers saying, what's in it for us? Not just what it, what's in it for me. And that is a tra has a transformative effect on uh, the British electorate that then creates the bargain between the Labour Party and the British people, right? That, 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 that flows forth ever since. And the sort of orthodoxies about a welfare state and health service all spring from that. And, and, and Churchill really didn't want to do any of this stuff during the war. He wanted to be a war leader. He was not interested in being anything other than a war leader, really. Wasn't much interested in domestic politics, even though, of course, he was instrumental in the creation of national, national, uh, uh, national insurance with Lloyd George, you know, when he was a liberal for the First World War, right? Even though he has that track record as a, as a welfare reformist, right? The, 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 the point is, is Labour in the Second World War, Attlee, as Deputy Prime Minister, Labour used the Second World War to prove how reliable, how trustworthy they were, how worthy of government they were, how reliable they were, because they they ran, the, they kept the domestic ships straight while mm. the war was going on. And what they got out of that was a big election victory and the chance to enact on their promises. So so if you're if you're in Labour and you're not looking at what happened there, yeah. You're never going to figure out how they ended up with their, you know, the greatest government of all time. The, the podcast, the podcast, what I forget is it? Um, it's we have ways of we have ways of making you talk. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> podcast title ever. And it's it's me and me and James Holland, and we we put them out every Tuesday and Thursday, I think. And sometimes, I mean, one of the things we've done, although we've had to stop doing it because we sort of we needed to collate new stuff, was people yeah. were sending in their family stories. Um, uh, you know, I uh, and we had uh, astonishing stuff. You know, some guy goes clearing his loft, finds a last letter to his nan from his nan's brother who was lost at sea in, you know, mm. 1941. And, you know, not a dry eye in the house. Because after all, I think that when the pandemic started, there was a lot of sort of glib, oh, it's like the war again. Because, you know, because after all, we, the Blitz is the Blitz is sort of one form of uh, 
uh, political discourse that people like to resort to, right? Mm. And um, and it turned out, and, I remember they were saying, like, who's going to be the Dame Vera Lynn of the pandemic? And it turned yeah. out Dame Vera Lynn, she was still alive at the beginning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, yeah, it, it was her all along. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> but but people were talking, you know, making the comparison. And the, 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 I think the, the, the point of comparison is that this is an event that affects everyone. That um, the interesting thing about Brexit, for instance, was was there were still plenty of people who were not interested. They cast their vote on the day of the referendum, and then they and then they reverted to not being interested at all in the EU, Britain's mm. place in the EU, the outcome, any of it. Right? That, that that's what happened because that's normal politics. Whereas COVID is different. It's like the war because because they are they do want us all to be vaccinated because they had did make us all stay at home because the the, the state suddenly had to do something really major. Dennis Norden talked about. Um, after the when he got into comedy writing after the Second World War, it was a really good time to get into comedy writing because everyone had been through the same thing, and they may yeah, all have their yeah. own point of view about it. But everyone knew what you, if you talked about rationing, everyone knew if what you, you were talking va- about. Vaccine human. I was at a gig the other day. I had to ask, did the guy on first do any vaccine stuff? Yeah, I mean that was almost like back in the day, like George Bush jokes, but but yeah. bigger than that. No, it's, like, bigger. You, it's bigger. It's bigger. It's going to be going to school, right? School. Yeah. What are the two things we've all done? We've gone to school and we most we've had some yeah. sort of brush with vaccines. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. I mean, this is the thing: is we now have a we now have a you know arguably like a a, a, a singularity event that everyone's been through. Although then then that means then as a comic, uh, uh, you've got to find your little patch in it. And yeah, well, the original way of looking at it. Yeah. And that is the thing is like, you know, I thought I had this great vaccine joke. And then I heard a guy doing one quite similar. And I was thinking, I need a better vaccine joke. And I think I think you're right about the singularity <laughs> as well. You know, like uh, in, in the uh, Avengers at the end, there's the blip. Yeah. And, and yeah, so, yeah. you know, people don't know the reference. But I do think that there is a, it is a, a good coda for where we're at is we're all sort of walking around. We will be for the next couple of years punch drunk. Well, I mean, thing. if 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 the new if the, the Marvel stuff post um uh covid isn't you know isn't using the blip as a metaphor um then they're idiots aren't they i mean it's it, it, it's like they it's like they'd um they looked in a crystal ball and seen that an event like this might happen yeah and obviously if we were on the internet now we would now be asserting that kevin feige was actually in league with big pharma <laughs> bill gates oh. <laughs> and, oh and in terms of people coming out and seeing you on tour i mean i'm, I'm presuming a lot of tickets are gone but where where can yes, they go that? uh well we're, we're the publandlord.com has all the dates that we're doing um some of them are some of them are it's basically what's left what's reactivatable from l- last spring yeah. um uh and then and then i'm i think i'm going out properly for the whole of next year basically um because i you know I, I, when I started out doing stand up, I used to get into this real mindset of like, if I, if I don't do it all the time, I'll forget how. Yeah. And uh, when I was a circuit comic, I used to, I would, I would, you know, um, I would work 364 days a year. And because that's the only way to learn is always to do it a lot. And yeah. I, and I, and if I had a holiday, if I were away for a week, I'd come back on the Monday, like, I don't know what to do. Oh, what do I say at the start? You know, like li- literally. So I'm, so I'm next year, I'm trying to shake all the rust off me. Basically. Well, listen, I mean, I, you know, I've been to your shows up at the fringe and stuff like that. And just so funny. Like if you've never been to a pub landlord, Al Murray show before, you just got to fucking go. It's hilarious. Oh, thanks, and, Jeff. and like I say, the, the podcast as well. I, I literally listened to the first episode this morning. I like Dan Snow's history here, but I felt like I needed this because in, in Dan Snow's history here, like sometimes I'm like, lads, this is, this is, this is gone. I don't mind it being a bit over my head, but I think that if you listen to Dan Snow's podcast, this goes so well 
uh, with it in terms of being accessible but informative at the same time. Well, thank you very much. I'll I'll pass that on to all the guys. Um, uh, yeah, we have ways of making you talk, and it's um, you know, uh, we don't do enough about the navy though. If you're into the navy, we don't. Do, that's what I'm told. We don't do enough about the navy. That's what I'll get. The letters I'll get in reaction to this podcast. Like, yeah, I've listened to that, Jeff, but uh, it conveniently leaves out the navy. <laughs> it'll be that I bet you any money the letters will be about the navy and also about the rifle that you mentioned that's because i'm i'm in the pay of big army that's why <laughs> <laughs> brilliant al murray thanks so much for coming on the show total pleasure jeff Okay, that was the chat there with the brilliant Al Murray. Do check out the podcast. Do go and see him live. I mean, genuinely an absolute tour de force. I mean, if you hang up your comedy watching boots without seeing Al Murray live, then you really haven't had a fully rounded experience of this art form. Okay, we're just going to do one quick letter. Okay, this was a letter from Paul Wilson. And we haven't had a dilemma like this for ages. I love this sort of thing. Uh, what would you, would you rather fight a chicken to death every time you got in your car? every time like a sort of weird peter griffin i'm thinking it's a normal sized chicken or an orangutan once a year but you get a sword um i think i'm gonna yeah chicken to the death i mean you didn't say an orangutan to the death but i'm sort of presuming that there must be some sort of equity here um i think i'd probably go orangutan with a sword i just think the chicken thing would grind me down do you know, <laughs> every day i mean i'd know that i was gonna win but it'd just be like every day i just need just need a day where it's the, the orangutan thing. I could sort of build myself up to it. But then, I mean, this is this is a good dilemma because then how many orangutan deaths have I got on my conscience? I'm not, I'm not going to sit there and feel like huge amount of misgivings over those chickens. Do you know what I mean? I, I, could, I could skin and gut those chickens, right? I could sell them. They'd create food for other people. It wouldn't be a senseless massacre. Whereas the orangutans, I don't think anyone's ready for orangutan meat yet. You know, <laughs> we never know with the hipsters. Give them long enough, they like eating weird stuff. But um, yeah, I feel, now it's getting trickier, isn't it? Orangutan once a year, but would I just start to build up, you know, and then I'd start to, uh, I wouldn't be able to watch Smokey and the Bandit. <laughs> or, or, But then if it was the chickens, I wouldn't be able to watch that scene in Rocky, every, you know, when he has to chase the chicken around the thing. That is a really good dilemma. Um, if anybody wants to kind of pitch in their uh, two cents on that, what most people think UK at gmail.com. I, I think on balance, I'm going to go with the orangutan, but uh, well, it's not easy. Okay, that is the end of episode 100 of What Most People Think. We just got a couple of things to do, which is first up, shout out the new Patreon, Simon Morris. Simon Morris, conveyancing. <laughs> yeah, Simon's a conveyancer. John Jones. Did I, did I mention these last week? John Jones, we've said for a long time uh, on the podcast. John Jones, we know, we love a alliterative name there. Uh, John Jones. What would John Jones be? I reckon John Jones would be one of those macho guys, but doing a not massively macho job. You know what I mean? Like he's sort of fitting blinds. <laughs> you know, one of those weird guys that when, you know, you, like he fitted blinds before and he did you a good price, but he's not the kind of guy where you'd let him do a quote where it's just the missus in. Do you know what I mean? I'm not saying that about you specifically, John Jones, but I think we've all met a John Jones. Graham Harker. Graham Harker, frustrated poet, head of science. Uh, Julia. Julia's just a one-namer. So Julia there, she's got to be working in where she can't show her colours. What woke industry do you work in, Julia? Eh? What, the Conservative Party these days? What would the the policies? Uh, Tom Beeks. Beeksy. What a great stag do name that is. Beeksy. Hey, it's Beeksy coming. It'd be, 
Tom Beats is the guy that everyone would be disappointed when they found out he weren't coming. Oh, oh but Beatsy's not coming. Oh, that's it. Oh, is he all right? Is he all right? Oh, Beatsy. God, do you remember? Last time he came out of us was 15 years ago. Do you think he doesn't fucking like us? Uh, and finally, David Gibbons. In this week of a orangutan chat, it feels a bit insensitive to mention the Gibbons. Is there a difference between a gi- gibbon and an orangutan? Is that culturally insensitive within the primate community? I don't know. But we're going to read out some reviews here. So this was... Uh, so we actually have some reviews this week, which is helpful. So this is says, He's nearly got his century. Great podcast, uh, supplementing my regular trinity of podcasts when I had time, but has now displaced Joe Rogan. Sam Harris and the Sam Harris and the Trigonometry lads are keeping you company on the subscription list. Well, listen, man. And then he goes on to say, highly dependable, solid content. Uh, <laughs> solid content. Well, no, Grant, I appreciate that. I mean, Joe Rogan, Jesus Christ, that is high praise um, indeed. I'm just trying to look at where all the other reviews are here. Um, it's all right, I have got other reviews this week. This is from another Gareth, what this person thinks. The the Alan Cochran episode is a belter. Keep up the good work, Jeff. Uh, uh, this is from Withy. Withy! Excellent podcast with Alan Cochran. The podcast is sometimes like two chaps in the pub putting the world to rights. And yeah, look, I make no... I make no and they've, he's also said that I've got a thing for Rebecca Long-Bailey. <laughs> that would make a very strange good morning, Mrs. Long-Bailey, wouldn't it? You'd have to do it in a slightly different intonation. Good morning, Mrs. Long-Bailey. How do you how do you like your 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 eggs? Fertilize? No, sorry, love. Look, no one's allowed to do this kind of chat with women anymore. I don't really have any stock lines, you know. In fact, if instead of doing the old "How do you like your eggs?" line, I'd just be cooking you some eggs because that's what's happened to men. Okay.